Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Up next, an insurance agent's murder stuns suburban St. Louis. It's a broad daylight execution. It was shocking. This was a very brazen crime. Years pass. No one's arrested. Until a suspect is identified by new technology. It's a real game changer. And a killer soon learns you can't hide what you can't see. In this trial, I guarantee you he got an education. Nestled along the west bank of the Missouri River, the St. Louis suburb of St. Charles looms large in U.S. history. It marks the spot where, in 1804, Lewis and Clark began their epic journey into the still uncharted American interior. It was a stop for Lewis and Clark, so they're very proud of that. There's a statue of Lewis and Clark down by the riverfront. On the morning of June 8, 2007, the peacefulness of this Midwestern community was shattered when a postal worker doing her normal rounds made a gruesome discovery. She found insurance agent Bob Eidman bloody and possibly dead in his office. She saw the body and then ran out screaming, as I think any of us would. Police arrived to find Bob Eidman dead at the scene. He'd been shot, execution style. He was shot once in the face and once in the neck. The last shot, the shooter was standing over him, looking down at him and fired one shot, went through and through his head and buried itself in the floor. This was cold-blooded murder, but that didn't jibe with the rest of the crime scene, which was sloppy and haphazard, what detectives call a disorganized crime. Bob Eidman's murder was not a particularly careful crime. There were, on the floor of the office, spent cartridges and also live rounds, which said to us that the shooter either had a bad weapon or he wasn't a, a good shooter. The murder weapon was later determined to be a 9 millimeter pistol. It was not found at the scene. Other than bullets, apparently from that gun, there was no evidence of the shooter in Bob's office. For now, detectives were stumped. It worried a lot of people because it was something that happened in broad daylight. 
Detectives questioned everyone at the neighboring businesses. To their surprise, no one saw anything. But someone did hear something. A woman with an office directly below Bob's heard a series of pops, but thought nothing of it at the time. She thinks, oh, Bob, what is, what's Bob up to? What's he doing up there? Is he moving furniture? Did he drop something? So she yells up to him playfully, hey, keep it down, Bob. Not realizing that he's just been shot dead. This helped detectives nail down a time for Bob's murder shortly before 11 a.m. Detectives got another possible break from a Mexican grocery store at the other end of the strip mall. They had a very good surveillance system because it was a warm day, their door was open, and one of the cameras actually had a view out into the parking lot, and we could see a white Ford Focus circle around shortly before 11 o'clock. At 10.50 a.m., this white Ford Focus passes in front of the bodega going toward Bob's office. And at 10.54, it passes again, going the same direction. There's no reason to go down that alley once, let alone twice within four minutes. The hunt was on for a white Ford Focus, which, in a setback, turned out to be an unusually popular vehicle. Police found 1,300 cars of that description in the St. Louis area. Even worse, Interstate 70, a major highway, was right next to the murder site. The killer had an easy escape route. And he wouldn't be the first to use it. In the 1990s, a serial killer, dubbed the I-70 killer, escaped via I-70 after all his murders. The individual responsible for the I-70 killings would go into a business, contact usually the sole person in the business, and would shoot them in the head. It was right off the highway, and so we thought it could be anyone. I mean, thousands of cars go by Interstate 70 every day. All told, police say the I-70 killer murdered six people, and he hadn't been caught. Is this a random killing of Bob Eidman, the start of something more, the start of a larger pattern? Do we need to be afraid here? Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Any business involves risk. Bob Eidman's was riskier than most. A lot of it was done on the spot, in cash. He was dealing with people with high-risk insurance, people who were having trouble getting insurance other places, people who had suspended licenses or DWIs. In the initial search, nothing appeared to be missing from Bob's office. When the police got there, there was still cash inside that, that cash drawer that hadn't been taken. We thought it was drugs or something that was more personal. You know, usually don't get murdered for no reason at all. Detectives were hoping they might get some information from Bob's wife, Diane. 
The day of the murder, she had been unable to reach her husband and showed up at the strip mall where Bob worked. She arrived while the scene was being processed. Police broke the news to her. There's no right way to react to the news that your spouse has been brutally murdered. It's a shock for any of us. Though nothing appeared to be missing from Bob's office, his wife told police to check his back pocket. She told them that he always kept a wallet with a lot of cash in it, several hundred dollars usually. Bob's wallet was gone. Police thought it was almost certain his killer had reached into his back pocket to get it. Evidence technicians swabbed the pocket. But they knew that in the absence of bodily fluids, DNA technology in 2007 couldn't produce a genetic profile from this piece of evidence. I was very skeptical, in fact, of being able to get something from that pocket. But DNA technology was getting more powerful every day. Analysts put the DNA from Bob's murder in storage in the hope that science would catch up to their evidence. In the meantime, detectives turned back to Bob's wife, Diane. When someone is randomly, brutally murdered, police automatically look at their spouse as a suspect as a matter of course. Diane said Bob, despite being in the insurance business himself, had only a tiny life insurance policy, about $5,000. That's when we found out that there were, in fact, three separate life insurance policies on Bob. And they were worth a lot more than $5,000. All three life insurance policies combined were $750,000. There was only one beneficiary involved, and that was Bob's wife, Diane Eidman. Was it possible Diane didn't know how much insurance money she'd get if Bob died? Could she have lied to police about her knowledge of the payout? After all, three quarters of a million dollars seemed like a good reason to want Bob dead. It certainly looked like a motive to us. Diane was alibied for the time of the murder, but that didn't get her off the hook. Could she have had somebody do it? Sure. But if you're going to do that, you have to communicate with someone because most people don't have a hitman in their Rolodex. Detectives now turned to the Eidman's phone records and computer activity. And when they did, the mystery of Bob Eidman's murder took a twist few people who knew him ever anticipated. In searching Bob's computer use, uh, we found that he was visiting a lot of gay pornography sites on the internet and massage businesses, gay massage businesses, and that type of thing. What detectives found on Bob's computer revealed a man with a secret life, a new lover, and someone with a possible motive for murder. As it turned out, Bob Eidman had a secret lover in Kansas City and had for eight months. In the initial investigation into Bob Eidman's murder, police thought the only person with an apparent reason to kill him was his wife, Diane. Diane Eidman is a prime suspect because she does have motive. She had means, she knew where things were kept in the office, and she was going to benefit with a great deal of insurance money. 
and it appeared that she might have a motive beyond collecting a $750,000 insurance payment. A search of Bob's computer showed he'd been cheating on her. A few months earlier, he embarked on a sexual relationship with a man named Kurt. He and Bob met in Columbia, Missouri, which is about halfway between St. Louis and Kansas City, on a number of weekends and spent a weekend in a, in a, uh, in a motel there. Kurt was interviewed and was alibied for the time of the murder, which didn't necessarily eliminate him as a suspect. But he did have some possibly interesting information for detectives. Some weeks before the murder, Bob had called him and said, Diane found out about us, and we've got to stop seeing each other for a while. During numerous interviews with detectives, Diane never said anything about Bob cheating on her. Why would she not tell us this? It could be a motive for uh, her to be responsible for killing Bob. The fact that he was cheating on his wife with a man, all of that adds up to a lot of motive. Diane was given a polygraph test. The results were inconclusive. Does that mean she did it? No. If she failed, would that mean she did it? Not necessarily. In searching all of Diane's communications in the weeks and months before her husband's murder, police could find no evidence of her hiring someone to kill Bob. Show me that communication, show me that wire, and if you can't, it didn't happen. I believe Diane Eidman was probably responsible for this homicide, but there was no concrete evidence enough to arrest her. The case went cold. Outside of ballistic evidence from the scene, which was useless in the absence of a murder weapon, detectives had very little evidence. The surveillance video of a white Ford Focus circling the strip mall shortly before Bob was shot, which might or might not have something to do with the murder, and the back pocket of Bob's pants, which might or might not contain the killer's DNA. But DNA technology was moving along at an exponential pace. Touch DNA was revolutionizing crime science. In the old days, with less sensitive testing, you would have had to have the defendant or perpetrator's blood or semen or saliva there, and they wouldn't have found it. Touch DNA isn't really so much a separate thing as it is a continuation of DNA. Was it possible that the killer, simply by touching Bob's back pocket while stealing the wallet, had left a genetic signature behind? Touch DNA has always been around, but the technology to analyze it has not been. As DNA kits become more and more sensitive, now we can actually analyze that touch DNA sample. In 2010, the DNA swab from Bob's back pocket, which had been in storage since the murder, was processed by forensic technicians. In this case, the back pocket of the victim was swabbed with a moistened swab with uh, distilled water. That swab is then taken and cut for DNA analysis, and it's extracted, quantified, amplified, and ultimately a DNA profile is produced on the genetic analyzer. A mixed DNA profile with two sources was generated from Bob's back pocket. One source, not surprisingly, was from Bob himself. The other source, so far unidentified, was almost certainly from Bob's killer. 
there is no reason for someone's DNA to be there, uh, except if they're the one who removed that wallet from that pocket. Detectives were hopeful this profile would turn up a hit in the CODIS database, which contains the DNA profiles of thousands of known offenders. It was run against the database, and there was no match. The case went cold yet again. But most criminals don't stop being criminals. And in this case, Bob's killer just couldn't stop breaking the law. The whole thing is mind-boggling. In 2009, St. Louis police arrested a convicted felon for forging a check. His name was Paul White. Paul White was a career criminal. He'd been in and out of prison since he was a teenager. So White's arrest was fairly routine. But what police did next was part of a new routine in police jurisdictions all over the country. If you go back 15, 20 years, nobody's going to take your DNA when you get arrested. Now they do. So White's DNA, a sample of his DNA was taken at the time he was arrested on a forgery case. And that DNA was entered into the CODIS database, where computers automatically cross-referenced it with the DNA of thousands of criminals. Paul White's DNA matched the DNA from Bob's back pocket. When I get that name from the crime labs, I couldn't control myself. I was very happy. This is the lead that is going to bring the individual to justice. But did that prove Paul White was Bob's killer? Not necessarily. The two men had done business together. Paul White's wife had a car insured through him, and he had gone in there and made a cash payment, so he knew there would have been cash there. But Paul White insisted he was not in Bob's office the day of the murder. The only time that I've ever been in there was when we got insurance. Other than that, I've never been in there. The DNA was pointing straight at Paul White, but a good defense lawyer might convince a jury it was there from his previous visit, even if it was months earlier. If you have DNA in isolation, the defense can always argue, well, maybe there was contamination, maybe there was secondary transfer. Detectives dug into Paul White's background and got a surprise. One month before Bob Eidman's murder, he'd been involved in yet another routine arrest. Paul White was arrested for outstanding traffic tickets. He and his companion, a man named Cleo Hines, were both arrested as they were driving a Ford Focus. The vehicle was white and had no license plates, which fit the description of the Ford Focus seen on surveillance video circling around Bob Eidman's office just before his murder. That is a very big game changer. By this time, more than two years had passed since Bob Eidman's murder, and Paul White was confident DNA could not tie him to the crime. In the tapes of his interview, you can see that. When they tell him, we have your DNA in his pockets, well, he leaned back in his chair, put his arms behind his, his head, and smiled and laughed and said his exact words were, there is no way on God's green earth you have my DNA in those pockets. Your DNA comes back in the back pocket of Robert Iden. Your DNA. 
I just showed you. I, I understand that, but I ain't nowhere in the world. He was thinking what most people were thinking at that time, that you have to have a fluid for there to be DNA. He had no idea what the concept of touch DNA was. Cleo Hines, Paul White's accomplice, understood more quickly and came clean. Prosecutors learned that Paul White recently lost more than $1,000 gambling, and since he'd been in Bob Eidman's office before, knew there should be lots of cash there. Bob knew him and could identify him, so the only way to get the money and not get caught was to kill Bob. Prosecutors believe Paul White shot Bob as soon as he and Cleo Hines entered the office. But there was a problem. Bob's money drawer was locked. In fact, it was broken and wouldn't open, something White hadn't counted on. Desperate, he rifled Bob's back pocket and grabbed his wallet, not realizing the touch DNA he left behind would ultimately identify him. How much money was Bob Eidman's life worth? $300. They took the money to two separate casinos in the area and lost the money within hours. How cold-blooded do you have to be to take that blood money and go to the casino and gamble with it? All murders are senseless, but this one just seemed to be in a category by itself. Before the DNA match was made, Bob Eidman's wife, Diane, remained the number one suspect. That match not only identified Bob's killers, it proved her innocence. I'm happy to be able to solve a cold case using DNA. I'm also very happy when we get a case that exonerates an individual. In August of 2012, Paul White was found guilty of first-degree murder and got life with no parole. Cleo Hines, convicted of second-degree murder and robbery, also got life in prison. All because they were convinced evidence they couldn't see couldn't possibly land them in jail. No one was more surprised by the touch DNA results than Paul White was. The fact that just the slightest brush on the inside of his victim's pocket could later convict him, it's incredible. The victim's still dead. You can't fix that. But justice, I think, is something that we care about as a, as a people. And when you get that DNA hit, it looks like we're going to get as close as we can come here to justice. It makes the job worthwhile.